The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. To Luke chapter 2. continue in our study of uh, the Gospel of Luke, finding ourselves coming to the conclusion of the Luke's account of the, the birth and early life of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we looked uh, this morning, beginning in verse 22, and uh, making our way down, Lord willing, through verse 38. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along. If not, uh, uh, just listen along as I read. Luke writes, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the, in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word as your revelation of yourself to us. You speak to us through your word. You show us who you are. You communicate to us what you demand of us. You teach us truth. You show us what a life of obedience and holiness and righteousness looks like. And you call us to faith and to follow you in a world filled with darkness. And so we come humbly before your word this morning, asking you to show us what it is that you would have us see, teach us what it is you would have us to learn. 
bring us to obedience in areas of our life where we need to obey. Draw our hearts to our Lord Jesus Christ that we may love him even more so than when we came in. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As we walk through Luke's gospel, we've been asking the question and sort of thinking through, why is it that Luke includes for us the things that he includes? Why is it that he shares with us the stories that he shares? There are many things that could have been said about the life and the birth narrative and the early years of Jesus' life. Uh, No gospel writer includes them all. If they did, it would be a much larger Bible than the one we have. So the ones that they include certainly have a purpose and a reason for their inclusion. And as we come to the narrative here and we're introduced to this man Simeon and this woman Anna, we reflect on why is it that Luke would would record for us these stories? What is it that he would have us to know uh, from these stories? Why is it that they are so important, these two people who seem like rather obscure people in the big scheme of life at the time of the birth of Jesus and really in the big scheme of the Bible itself, Uh, neither one of them having been mentioned anywhere else before nor after this, why is it that Luke would see fit to mention them and to make sure that that this piece is recorded for all who would read his book in the years to come? There's a couple things I believe that Luke is intending to do. You'll recall that the whole book is written uh, in order that a man named Theophilus, who was the original recipient of this book, and then certainly all else who would read it in those days and all who would read it in the years to follow, would, would be fortified in their faith, would their, that the security of their salvation would be established even more firmly, that their doubts would be addressed, and that a firm assurance of their faith would be the result of reading the book. And there are a couple of things that Luke has in mind that are important to him. He is writing primarily to a Gentile audience, you recall, and he is writing specifically to a Gentile man. And there are a couple of things in this narrative that sort of pop off the page that that I think are clues as to why Luke wants us to give attention to these two people and to the experience that they had and to the things that they said. There's a couple of things that are in view here. Luke wants to establish at the very beginning that Jesus is truly the Messiah, that he is the rightful heir to the kingdom of David. He is the rightful heir to the, to the Abrahamic covenant and to the Davidic covenant that we talked about last week, that he has the right to sit on David's throne, that he is a true Jew from the right line, and that he is the right one to sit on that throne. And so he wants to continue to establish that Jesus' early life, his childhood, his birth, and even his early life was established as a true Jew, as a true son of Abraham. And so he records the first part of this text in order to continue to establish that point. And then uh, the Old Testament had established in the law that that we're not to take just the sole witness of one person as firm evidence or something, that, that if something is to be asserted, whether it be a charge against somebody in court or an affirmative statement that something is true, that it needs to be firmly established on the witness of two or three other people. And so Luke wants to be meticulous here as an historian to establish that we don't just have the the fact that Jesus was born in a miraculous way and that he was truly the Messiah on the word of one person or two people. He wants to bring forth multiple witnesses to this reality. And so Simeon and Anna stand in the text of Luke's gospel as further witnesses that validate that Jesus is indeed who 
he claims to be, that he is indeed who Mary and Joseph have claimed him to be, that he is indeed what Zechariah and Elizabeth have affirmed him to be. And so we have Simeon and Anna here presented as further witnesses to the truth of who Jesus is. And so these, these, these narratives are important for those reasons. Luke is establishing these things. And we'll see how he does that as we work our way through the text. He begins by sort of giving us some context as to what's going on when this encounter with Simeon occurs. The context is, is the temple. We've now moved from another location into the, the temple at Jerusalem. And we're told that that Jesus is there because his Mary mother and his father Joseph have brought him there. And they brought them, him there uh, really in order to accomplish a, a, several things that were all prescribed in Jewish law. Uh, they're, they're coming to do some ceremonial things that were required. At least three things are in view. Uh, if we were to sort of uh, back up to verse 21 of, uh, of the, the previous text, well, we're told that at the end of eight days when he was, he was circumcised and he was called Jesus, the name given to him by the angel. Uh, so what's happened here is this. Uh, just a few days earlier, what's happened is Jesus was circumcised, and he had to be circumcised, but it was likely done here at this same temple, and he was named Jesus on the eighth day after a Jewish boy was born. It was prescribed that he would be circumcised, that he would be brought, and typically it was done by the priest. It could have been done by others, but he was to be circumcised. And, and circumcision, as you'll recall, was the Old Testament sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was the identifier of sort of national identity for Israel that had been prescribed all the way back to God's promise to Abraham that we looked at last week. The sign of that covenant, the sign that one uh, fell underneath the, the Abrahamic covenant, that, was, that one was marked out as a part of God's people, was this sign of, of circumcision. And it symbolized a, a couple of things. It symbolized the separation from sin, the cutting off of sin from life, and it, and it symbolized separation from the Gentiles. In, in short, that was what circumcision meant. And, and for Jesus, it was important that, that he be circumcised. It was important that, he, that, he, that his family followed the law of the Old Testament to mark him out as a true son of Abraham. It was, it was specified in the law. And we're told that Jesus' family honored the law multiple times throughout this text. And the first way they did that was by bringing him to the temple to be circumcised. But there were other things that needed to take place in the temple. We're told here that, that Jesus was, was brought there because the time had come for their, their purification according to the law of Moses and to present him to the Lord. Both of those things were prescriptions in Old Testament law. Not only was a, a, a child to be a Jewish boy child to be circumcised, but all children, specifically firstborn males, were to be brought and presented to the Lord. According to the Jewish law in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, we're told that firstborn sons belonged particularly to the Lord. Uh, this is what the Lord said to Moses and to his people in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. He said, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The first child to come out of the womb, the first male child to come out of the womb was to be particularly dedicated to the Lord. The Lord had particular ownership over that firstborn male child. Now that doesn't mean that they had to become priests. 
uh, they didn't have to become priests, not every firstborn male, just the Levites became priests. But a firstborn male was to be presented particularly before the Lord in a ceremony somewhat similar to what we would do in a baby dedication today. It was to be dedicated particularly for the Lord's service. The parents would bring the, the child to the temple of the Lord. They would bring him and they would offer a particular sacrifice and present him to the Lord. And the purpose of the sacrifice was that the parents would then redeem him back from the Lord. That is to say, he belongs to the Lord, to be given to the Lord. But by, by virtue of this sacrifice, the parents could redeem him back to themselves and raise him as their own. And so that was the purpose of this particular ceremony with which Joseph and Mary have brought Jesus to the temple. And it took on special meaning for Jesus because it showed that even from his birth, he was consecrated to God particularly. And he was going to live that out throughout his life. And so Mary and Joseph had come to the temple on this day in order to do this very thing, to obey the law of God and to present Jesus, their firstborn son, to the Lord and to redeem him back. The other thing that they had come to do, we're told, is it was time for their purification according to the law of Moses. Now it says their purification, but really what we've got in view here is Mary's purification because Old Testament law, again, declared that mothers after giving birth were ceremonially unclean for a period of time. That is to say, they couldn't go in the temple. They couldn't participate in worship. They were ceremonially unclean. Uh, giving birth was one of many things that could, could make one unclean and would require one to go through uh, some sort of ceremonial purification. But after the birth of a son, the law prescribed that moms were, 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 to, uh, uh, to, were to be ceremonially unclean for, for 40 days. 40 days. If you gave birth to a daughter, it was 80 days. I have no idea why it was twice as much for a daughter than it was for a son. But it was, nonetheless, that was the case. And so up until that time, the mom couldn't enter the temple. And it was after that time frame that they were required by law to then bring a sacrifice and to come to the temple and to present that sacrifice before the priest. And in offering that sacrifice, the priest would then declare the mother clean again. And so on this occasion that we have in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, these, these last two ceremonies are what's in view. He's already been circumcised, but they've come to the temple to both present him as their firstborn son and for Mary's uh, uh, purification. And the point of this is Luke wants to meticulously show that Jesus' parents were faithful Jews. They were faithful, godly mom and dad. They, were, they cared about honoring the Lord and doing what was right in his eyes. Jesus was not to be born of rebels and rebe rebellious, you know, religious slackers. His parents were, were faithful Jews. He comes from a line of faithful, believing Jews. These kind of things are going to be important because later down the line, when Jesus begins to face opposition in his ministry, his, his heritage is going to be challenged. His, his birth is going to be challenged. It's going to be claimed that he was an illegitimate child of Mary. And all of these things are going to be, be thrown as accusations against him. And Luke wants us to know that none of those things are true. That Jesus is truly a son of Abraham that his parents were godly parents who meticulously fulfilled the law, even in his birth and his early childhood. And so Luke records for us this story. One of the things that we find in this little sort of contextual piece at the beginning is something that's interesting. We find out that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people. 
And you say, well, what difference does that make? What difference does that make? I think it does make a difference. They were poor. They were poor people. And it's clear because when we look at how this thing plays out, when they come to the temple for this purification, uh, what had been prescribed by law for their sacrifice when they presented their son to be to the Lord was the first uh, was to be a, a one-year-old lamb and a turtle dove, a one-year-old lamb and a turtle dove. But you'll notice that that's not what Mary and Joseph present to the Lord in their sacrifice. You see mention of two turtle doves and some pigeons, right? Now, when you're reading that in your Bible, you might read past that and wonder, well, what difference does turtle doves and pigeons make? It's just what they brought. But the issue here is, what, what did you do in the Old Testament if you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb to bring for the sacrifice? Were you just out of luck? Were you just not able to participate? No, the law had a provision for that in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. It said specifically uh, of a mother, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons one for burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she'll be clean. This is what Mary and Joseph brought for their sacrifice. They didn't bring a lamb because they couldn't afford a lamb. They brought a, a, a poor person's sacrifice to the temple because that's what they were. They were poor people. Jesus wasn't born into wealth. He wasn't born into any sort of privilege. He was born to an ordinary poor family. He was born into poverty. He grew up in a poor family with a poor mom and a poor dad. They had poor income. He ate poor meals. He lived in a, a, a poor context. His whole livelihood as a child was in the context of poverty and what it means to be poor. He knows what it's like to grow up poor. He knows what it's like to have humble means. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, said this. He says, Poverty, it is manifest, was our Lord's portion upon earth. From the days of his earliest infancy, he was nursed and tended as a babe by a poor woman. He passed the first 30 years of his life on earth under the roof of a poor man. We need not doubt that he ate a poor man's food, that he wore poor man's apparel, that he worked a poor man's work, and he shared in all a poor man's troubles. Such condescension is truly marvelous. Such an example of humility passes man's understanding. When we think in terms of who Jesus is and how he humbled himself, the Apostle Paul writes, taking on human flesh, not only did he humble himself by stepping out of heaven and coming to a, a, a filthy, sin-riddled world, but he, but he came to a poor family in the midst of poverty. The one who was rich with wealth beyond measure was born into poverty. The poor should never feel forgotten by Christ. He is one who understands what it's like to be poor and to not have a lot and to have the particular troubles that come with not having a lot and the struggles that come with poverty. Christ can identify. He knows it because he lived it his whole early childhood until he became a grown man. In fact, his whole life was one that was marked by not having much. And we see that from the very beginning. His parents were poor parents. They offered a, a poor person's sacrifice. They lived a humble life with all the challenges that came with that. And Jesus knows what that's like. If that's you, if you're not rich, then you know what? You're in good company. Christ understands what it's like to not be rich. If you struggle sometimes to pay the bills, if you have the troubles that, that come with not being wealthy and not having an abundance and there are things that you lack and things that you want and things that you have to pray for, Jesus understands those things and he identifies with you in a very real and personal sort of a way. 
That was the life he lived. If we're not careful, we as sort of wealthy Americans living largely middle-class lives can begin to believe Jesus grew up just like we did. But he didn't. He didn't. He identifies with the poor because that's what he was. And so we see Jesus and Mary and Joseph. They've come to the temple. They've come to offer this poor sacrifice in order to fulfill the law as best they could do with the means that they had. And what we're told is when they get there to the temple, they run into two people that Luke thinks are significant enough for us to, 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 to know about. The first one, his name is Simeon. We're told there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And we're introduced to him here. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. He, we know very little about him. His oh, oh, name is only mentioned here. His name means God has heard. God has heard. We've noticed throughout Luke that names mean something and they tend to indicate something that God's doing in the midst of the, the story. But we know nothing of his life before this and we know nothing of his life after this. We know nothing of his personal circumstances. We don't know really his age. Many assume that he was an older man because of what he says here. And perhaps that's true. Likely it's true. But the main thing we're told about him is the thing that really matters. It's not his circumstances, it's his character. We're told what we need to know by Luke, that he's devout, right? He's devout and he's righteous. The most important th thing about a man is his character. The most important thing about a woman is her character. And what we find about this man, Simeon, is that he's got a godly character. He's righteous, he's devout, he's a godly man. And that's important because if you'll recall, at this time in the history of Israel, it was pretty hard to find a godly man. Israel as a nation was apostate. They had turned their backs on the Lord. They had done this generations earlier, and because of that, the Lord had stopped speaking to them for centuries. No prophets, no written word, no prophecy, no nothing from the Lord for 400 years because of their rebellion and their sin and their unwillingness to listen to what he had already said. Even the religious leaders had abandoned true faith in Christ. It was a dark, dark time in the history of Israel. But Luke wants us to understand because it was dark and because it was hard to find godly men doesn't mean there weren't any. There were some. And Simeon was one of them. You may remember Israel's leadership had completely abandoned faith and we will see this all throughout the gospel as they opposed Christ. But they, they were far from God. There were really four main groups in, in leadership religiously in Israel at the time. You've probably heard most of their names. There were the, the Pharisees. Have you heard of the Pharisees? The Pharisees were, were well known. We'll see them as we work through uh, the, the Gospel of Luke. But these were the, the legalists, the religious legalists. They, they believed you could earn you know, a favor with God by, by being good and following the law and doing works of righteousness. They were legalists who tried to make everyone follow meticulously all the details of the law. So you had them, and then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were different from the Pharisees. They were sort of the theological liberals, if you will, of the day. They existed in that time. They too were far from God. They denied uh, the whole issue of resurrection in general, and that's going to become a problem when Jesus rises from the dead. They're going to have a hard time with that. Uh, there were the Zealots, another group that maybe you haven't heard so much about, but they were present at the time. They were sort of the, the religious-slash-political revolutionaries. They, they were the ones who were advocating an overthrow of, of Rome and sort of a, a forceful um, uh, sort of restoration of Israel's sovereignty. So in every generation, you've got those, right? 
the revolutionaries who are political revolutionaries who want to overthrow whoever's in charge and, and establish whatever it is that they think is right. And so you had religious zealots at the time who had influence. And then you had Essenes, which was a fourth group. These were sort of the, the, the religious uh, hermits. They separated themselves from all of, of public life and they, they isolated themselves far away and sort of uh, as sort of ascetic hermits, if you will, living out in the, in the wilderness and, and, and sort of having their own little commune. But, but amidst all four of these major groups of religious leadership at the time, almost all of them were apostate and ungodly and far from God. You would have looked at the scene, if you could see it, and you would have said, man, it's a really dark time religiously in Israel. Is there anybody here who's still godly? Is there anybody here who still believes the truth of God's word? Is there any person of true faith and holiness and righteousness and sanctification that's still living in these days? And Luke wants to answer that question for you. He wants you to know, yes, indeed, there were. One of them was a man by the name of Simeon. Simeon. Even in the midst of all of this darkness. And this has been true all throughout history. God always preserves a faithful remnant of his people. You'll notice that. Through every age, through every generation, no matter how dark the time gets, God always preserves a faithful remnant. You may not always be able to see them on the surface. They may not always be easy to find and identify, but they're always there. And Simeon is a, a perfect example of such a thing. He was a godly, faithful man in a spiritually dark time. He was godly in his character. He was devout in his faith. He had believed God's word, and he had acted on the belief in God's word. He was a man of faith, of faith. In the world's eyes, quite often, these people like Simeon are nobodies. But in God's eyes, they're somebodies, and they matter. And Luke has is, is, is pointed to us multiple people who fit this category. In the world's eyes, nobodies, but in God's eyes, somebodies. Mary and Joseph, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and now Simeon and Anna. These people are important, they matter, because they remained faithful when all the world around them was far from God. These are people who deserve honor. They deserve our attention. It's hard to be faithful to God when everybody around you is running the other way. It's hard to, to be devout and to hold to your faith when it's unpopular and when it doesn't get you any good rewards. When in fact it might get you persecuted and hated. And that's the kind of man Simeon was. We know that about him, and that's all that we really know about his character. But we're told here in the text that some other things that, that are true of him in this situation. We're told that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that's a, a phrase that comes from the Old Testament. We won't take the time to trace it all out this morning. But the word consolation simply means comfort. It was believed that when Messiah came, that he would bring comfort and consolation to his people. And so sometimes he was referred to as the Messiah, that is, as the consolation of Israel. And so, so this man, Simeon, was waiting for that. He was waiting for the comfort that would come when the promised Messiah would show up. He was a man who was still waiting for the Messiah. It had been centuries since they'd even heard anything from God, much less had a hint that the Messiah was coming. Most people had long ago abandoned any hope that Messiah was going to ever actually show up. But not Simeon. He was waiting. He was waiting every day, waiting anxiously for the Messiah to arrive. He was a man who woke up every morning. He opened his eyes and he breathed the fresh air. He put on his sandals and he went toward the temple because today could be the day. This could be the day. He was waiting. 
he had not lost hope. And he was waiting for the Messiah to come and do several things. He was waiting for the Messiah to come and fulfill the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. We looked at that last week. But he was also waiting for something else that faithful Jews were waiting on. They were waiting on the Messiah because when the Messiah came, he was not just going to fulfill the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, but he was going to establish a new covenant. And we find that in Jeremiah chapter 31. You might want to mark this in your Bible if you flip to that page, if you can find it in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 31 through 33. This is another prophecy of the Messiah that Jeremiah uh, utters. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, in the Old Testament, God understood that, 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 that Israel has been unfaithful already and would continue to be unfaithful. He says that, this, that but, a, but, a, but a new covenant is coming. I'm going to make a new covenant. It, it's different from the one that I made before. You remember the one that everybody broke and the one that everybody abandoned? I'm going to make a new covenant, and it's going to be different. The way it's going to be different is this. The law is not going to be external to my people. I am going to write my law inside of their hearts. I am going to write it on their hearts so they don't forget it. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And Israel, faithful Israelites, had longed for the day when the Messiah would arrive. And that would become the comforting reality of their experience. And it is this that, that Simeon was waiting for, that he was longing for. And we're told also that the Holy Spirit was upon him. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week, didn't we? I know you remember all of that. You wrote it down, you've studied it all week, you've committed to memory how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament, right? Nobody's responding because you don't want to lie in church. I understand that. That's a good, good, a good thing. But you may recall at least bits and pieces of that, that the Holy Spirit was external and he came upon people for a season and then he would depart for various reasons, for various purposes, for various points of time. He didn't indwell people like he does in the New Testament. We talked about that last time. And Simeon is an example of that because we're told here that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had come upon him. We're not told precisely how this played out. We're not fully sure, but we are told that there were three specific things that the Holy Spirit does in his life when he comes upon him. Number one, he revealed to him supernaturally that before he died, he was going to see with his own eyes the Messiah. We don't know how this came to Simeon's life. He doesn't tell us how that happened. But in some way, the Holy Spirit made clear to this man that he would see Christ before he died. He made this very clear. And by faith, Simeon believed it. And every day of his life, he was waiting for the fulfillment of this promise that was brought to him by the Holy Spirit. Every day, he was in that temple. Every day, moms and dads were bringing their children to be uh, presented to the priest. And every day, Simeon was watching those moms and watching those babies come. And he was wondering, is today the day? Is this the family? Is this the child? He believed the Lord because the Lord had, had shown him what was to come. 
But another thing the Holy Spirit did in his life was he arranged this meeting with Mary and Joseph. Uh, This wasn't an accidental meeting. It was an arranged meeting. The temple was a huge place. It was literally teeming with people. Uh, I mean, if you had tried to meet up with somebody, it would probably be difficult. Maybe you could imagine... um, I'm trying to think of a context, maybe, uh, maybe going to a, a college football game or, or some massive concert, if you're not a sports, we don't want to leave the no sports people out of the illustration here. Maybe some massive concert that's flooded by thousands of people. And you can imagine going to, to meet a friend there uh, in that flood of people, trying to find them would be difficult, even if you were looking and even if you were making an effort to meet up with somebody. But here, Mary and Joseph and Simeon are not making any effort to meet up. They don't even know each other at this point. But we're told that the Holy Spirit has arranged this meeting and that he's led by the Spirit to be in the exact spot he needs to be when Mary and Joseph arrive. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit confirms the identity of Jesus in his life. Somehow, when Mary and Joseph arrive and Jesus is with them, immediately he knows this is the family, this is the child. The only way he could possibly know this is by the Holy Spirit, right? Because it's not like Jesus had like a red light on his head or anything that that went off that, you know, I'm the Messiah. He wouldn't have known it by looking at him. Most people looked at him and just totally ignored him. Most people walked right by Mary and Joseph that day in the temple, ignored them. They were nobodies coming to do, offer a poor sacrifice. Nobody would have cared. Nobody would have paid attention. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, this man Simeon knew immediately that this is the one. He knew. He doesn't have to ask questions. He sees them and he knows. How does he know it's the right one? It's the Holy Spirit who is upon him. And he knows. He knows. When the parents brought in the child, we're told by, by, by Luke, that he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, really, he sang. It says said, but it was a song. And it's the last of the songs that we'll take a look at here in the birth narratives. We saw Mary's song several weeks ago. We saw last week the song of Zechariah, who sang in response to what he saw in Christ. And now this man, Simeon, sings a brief song of praise to the Lord for what he's seeing. Like the Magnificat that we saw from Mary, uh, this song if, if you grew up in some sort of a, an Anglican environment or maybe a Catholic environment um, or, or some other sort of um, liturgical environment in church, you may have sung this song. It's referred to as the Nunc Dimittis. Uh, again, just like the others, named that because of the first two words in Latin that appear in the text, now Lord. It's the final song that Luke records. And there are some notable things that he tells us in this song. There are some notable things that we should pay attention. What's notable is the very first thing that comes out of his mouth. He says, Lord, now you're letting your your servant depart in peace. Now, if you don't catch that from the translation, what he's saying in translation is simply this. Lord, I can go die in peace now. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. It's like he's been waiting every day for this moment to happen. This is what God has promised him. This is what God has called him to be watchful and waiting for. And now, with his own eyes, he has seen the Lord Jesus and he says, alright, I can go die in peace now. I'm ready to die. Take me home, Lord. 
Every morning he's been wondering, is this the day? And now God has finally made good on his promise. And he says, my work is done. I'm ready to go be with the Lord right now. He speaks as a man who is absolutely not afraid to die. Do you catch that in his words? He's a man who, he speaks as a man who's finished the work that the Lord has given him. He speaks as a man who knows that this world is not his home. He speaks as a man who treasures earthly things, I mean heavenly things above earthly things. He, he speaks as a man who knows his inheritance isn't here, that his inheritance is in eternity. And so he's not afraid to die. How is this possible? Well, he's a man who's lived by faith in the Lord. He's been a man who's lived by faith and God has shown himself faithful. And now he's ready to go die. And he's ready to go die because he has seen the Messiah. He's seen the Messiah. He says this, I'm ready to die for my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of the people. Jesus was his name, right? And his name means Yahweh saves. Say that with me. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Jesus came to save. He knows this. Later in his life, when asked about his mission, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus taught great things. He did miracles. There's a lot that, that surrounds his life and ministry that we'll study as we work through Luke's gospel. But he was never confused about why he came, and that was to save those who were lost, to find those who were hopelessly trapped in sin and its eternal bondage, and to redeem them, to save them, to forgive their sins, to give them eternal life. He came to save his people. And once Simeon sees Jesus, he knows salvation has come. Simeon doesn't live uh, likely to see the cross and to see the resurrection, but he didn't have to. He didn't have to. Like every other Old Testament saint, he had placed his faith in God's provision of a Messiah who was yet to come. And as he holds this little baby, he sees in his little eyes God making good on that promise. He doesn't have to know how it all unfolds from that point on. He just knows that God has made good on his promise and that salvation has come. And that that salvation is coming to him by faith in this precious child. Salvation has arrived and he's ready to die. By the way, as a way of application, that's the only way anybody is ever ready to die, is to see the salvation of the Lord. Until you see salvation, my friend, you're not ready to die. Until you see salvation and it comes to you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe me when I tell you, you are not prepared to die. Because the Bible makes very clear what death brings to those who don't know Christ. It brings an accountability for a life of sin and rebellion against the Creator. It brings accountability and judgment for our sin. It brings an eternal punishment and an eternal hell forever paying the price for the sins committed in the flesh. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never seen the salvation that comes in Christ and embraced him by faith like Simeon did, you're not ready to die. You should be terrified of death because your sins are not forgiven. You're accountable. You do not have eternal life. You are standing on your own righteousness, which is filthy rags before the Lord, and you genuinely have no hope beyond this life. Jesus is the one who brings salvation. 
He's the one who saves. And it's only in him that you can find eternal life. If you don't know Christ, you're not ready to die. Simeon knew Christ. He saw salvation, and so he was ready to die. He said, my eyes have seen salvation. And he talks about Jesus. He says two things about him, that he is a light to the Gentiles and that he is the glory of Israel. A light to the Gentiles and glory for Israel. And again, Luke is writing to Gentiles, to a Gentile man and to a Gentile community. And so he wants to make the point early and often that Jesus has come not just to be a savior for Jews, but that he has come to be a light for the world. Uh, that he has come to bring us salvation that is open to anyone who will place their faith in him. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and entrusts their life to him can face death with confidence and certainty because of what Christ is going to do and what Christ ultimately has now done. He's a Messiah for the nations. He came to save Gentiles as well. Now, this was clear all throughout the Old Testament. You could trace it in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 60, and plenty of other places in the Old Testament that, that God's plan had always been that Israel was to be a blessing. They were chosen to be God's special people because they were going to be used by him to be a blessing to the nations of the world, that they were going to be the conduit through which his blessing flowed out to all the nations. But Israel consistently got this wrong. They consistently got puffed up in their own pride and their own ego at being called God's chosen people and sought to hoard God's blessings for themselves and became prideful and prejudiced against people who were not like them, who were not Jews. So that by the time Jesus comes along and is born, there's this racial prejudice and racism where Jews hate the Gentiles and see them as inferior and recoil at the idea that God would actually redeem Gentiles. But here Luke wants us to know that's precisely why Jesus has come. And Simeon, this Old Testament Jew, sees it and he knows it and he understands it. But for Israel of that day, their racism and their prejudice had blinded them to the truth that they needed to see. But Jesus came to be a light to the world. He came to, to show us that, that anyone in repentant faith can be saved, Jew, Gentile, from any continent, from any nation, with any skin color, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, that he's come genuinely to be a savior for the world. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or where you stand in relation to your community. In fact, it doesn't matter if you've lived a righteous life or if you lived a sinful life. If you'll see the salvation that comes in Christ, if you'll see him as who he is, the Messiah, who's coming and has come now to die for your sins. You place your faith in him. You trust your life to him. He'll save you. But then Simeon turns his attention in the last part of this, of, of what, his, what he sings, if you will, to the future. The first part, he glories in what God has done in the present with the Messiah coming. But here he begins to talk about what's coming down the road. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this a child is appointed for the fall and rising of many, for a sign that is opposed, and so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Amidst all the joy of the Messiah's arrival and all the joy that Mary and Joseph had been experiencing, Simeon gives them a sobering truth of what's to come. While it's a time of celebration and joy right now, this baby's life is not going to be surrounded by that forever. His life is going to bring pain. His life is going to bring difficulty. 
And he speaks, it seems, primarily to Mary here. He says, he said to Mary, his mother. And you wonder, why does he speak to Mary and not so much to Joseph? Well, we know from an historical point of view that it seems like sometime after Jesus' 12th birthday, when he's presented at the temple, that Joseph likely dies. He's never mentioned again from that point on. Later on, we have references to Jesus' mother and his brothers, but no reference to Joseph. He just doesn't show up again. So the assumption is that he's passed at that point. And so, in prophetic wisdom, Simeon speaks primarily to Mary. And he wants her to know she needs to be prepared for what's to come. She needs to be prepared for how disruptive this young man's ministry is going to be. She needs to be prepared for how personally painful it's going to be for her. And as Phil Riken says, for the first time, the dark shadow of the cross fell upon both mother and child. Simeon makes clear some things that are true. He says this, this child is going to be, a, there's going to be a, a sign that is opposed. In other words, he's going to face opposition. He's going to face opposition. Though you celebrate him as the Messiah who's to come, and that's precisely who he is, not everybody's going to celebrate that. There are going to be those who hate him because of that. There are going to be those who oppose him because of that. And you know what? In every generation since that day to today, that has been absolutely the truth. The ministry of Jesus has always been riddled with opposition on all sides. It was truly despised and rejected by men. And from then until today, he has faced fierce opposition. In his day, the opposition mounts all throughout his ministry. He claims to be able to forgive sins. He, he heals on the Sabbath. He exposes the hypocrisy and the ignorance and the selfishness of the religious leaders. And ultimately, he's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be arrested and he's going to be crucified because they hate him for those things. They hate him for those things. He faced tremendous opposition. And in your culture and in mine, there's still tremendous opposition to Christ. The opposition is different today than it was then, but it's still real, isn't it? It's still real. I mean, people are, in our day are not so much opposed to the idea of Jesus. They're, they're perfectly fine with the idea of Jesus. They're perfectly fine with celebrating Christmas, right? They're perfectly fine, in general, with baby Jesus in the manger. They're perfectly fine with joy to the world. They're perfectly fine with peace and goodwill toward men. All of that, the idea of Jesus, <clears throat> they're perfectly, perfectly fine with. It's the implications of Jesus they're opposed to. They're fine with the idea of Jesus. They're opposed to its implications. They're opposed to the holiness that he demands to those who follow him. They're, they're opposed to the obedience uh, uh, to his moral instructions that we're called to live by. They're, they're, they're opposed to his commitment to truth in the midst of a world that loves relativism. They're opposed to his insistence on being the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. It's those things that the world around us hates every bit as much as the Pharisees hated in the first century. You're fine with the idea of Jesus. It's just the implications of Jesus that they oppose. <clears throat> it's a clear example of this, at least to my eyes, this week. We, um, as you, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you may have noticed, it wasn't really in the news very much, and uh, in your busy lives you may not have noticed, but a new president was inaugurated this week in our, in our nation. And on day one of his inauguration, he, was, uh, he began the day by attending a Catholic mass in a Christian church, a church whose worship bears the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then immediately upon being inaugurated, he picks up a pen and he signs an order um, reopening the floodgates for abortion in our nation and around the world. His spokesperson was asked uh, pretty early on about the incongruity of that. How is it that a man who worships in a church that bears the name Jesus Christ can sign an order that unleashes the murder of, of babies across the world? In other words, how can he, how can he be a Christian and promote abortion? And the answer that his, that his spokesperson gave was this, quote, I'll just take the opportunity to remind all of you that he's a devout Catholic and somebody who attends church regularly. He started his day attending church with his family this morning. Well, that's a fascinating answer. It doesn't tell us anything, does it? It tells us that he's like so many in our culture and so many in Jesus' first century culture, people who like the idea of Jesus but really don't want to have anything with the implications of Jesus. The ones who like to have Jesus as a window dressing on their life to give the appearance of religiosity but don't want to be bothered by the implications of actually following Christ. It's that kind of Christianity that our culture celebrates. The fraudulent, the hypocrite hypocritical kind the kind that honors Jesus in ceremonies but rejects his truth genuine Christianity has always been opposed by the prevailing culture and that's still true today if you seek to live a life that honors Christ truly and obeys his word you'll find opposition because that's what Jesus dealt with and he says that he's going to divide the world going to be responsible Simeon says for the fall and rising of many <clears throat> that's just a way of saying Jesus this, this baby this, this baby is going to have a dividing effect on the world there's only going to be two responses to him from this day forward you're going to either receive him or you're going to reject him he's going to either be a stone over which you stumble and fall or he's going to become the cornerstone of your life upon which you build yourself to eternal life. Jesus said it this way, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Make no mistake about it. Simeon wants Mary and Joseph to know that Jesus is the Messiah and that it's a joyful occasion that he's shown up, but the world is about to be rocked by his presence. That there's going to be opposition and that Mary is going to feel personal pain. He says, you're going to feel pain like a sword stabbing into your own soul. She is going to have to watch as her son faces this opposition in his ministry. And she is going to watch with tear-filled eyes as he is nailed to a Roman cross and killed. A sword that would pierce any mom's eyes in the heart and soul. But that's what Jesus does. He comes to divide. He comes to demand a decision. Either you're for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. There's no happy place to land where we can just keep him as window dressing in our life and reject his truth. You're either for me, and that means you recognize that you're a sinner who is in rebellion, who needs to confess your sin, bow before me, and trust your life to me, pleading only my blood of the cross for your sins and your salvation in order to be saved or you reject me and you look for some other salvation in some other place that will only disappoint you and condemn your soul to hell there is no other ground for me, against me 
You either stumble over Christ or you receive him. That was true in Simeon's day, and that's true in our day. What about you? Where do you stand in that? Have you responded to Christ? Are you ready to die? Can you, like Simeon, say, I'm ready to die? I've seen the salvation of the Lord. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. My eternity is secure. My sins are forgiven. And the Lord can take my life at any point because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. I have seen salvation and I no longer fear death. Or are you still contemplating Jesus? Still trying to make a decision on what you need to do. Still trying to hold on to him in part, but hold on to your sin as well. If that's you today, you're not ready to die. You need to confess that sin, and you need to bow before Jesus right now. That you might be numbered with the redeemed. And that he might be your savior and not your judge. I pray that you would do so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came to divide time and to divide humanity. And by the mouth of an obscure man named Simeon, in the temple in Jerusalem, the truth of who you are and the effect of your ministry was declared. And with historical hindsight, we look back and we know how true that prophecy of Simeon was. And how true... It is that you are the Savior of the world, the Messiah who has come. I pray, Lord, that those within earshot of this message this morning, whether here in the room or online, that they would honestly look themselves in the mirror and ask the question, am I like Simeon? Am I ready to die because I've seen the salvation of the Lord? Or am I still afraid of death because I'm not sure I belong to him? Lord Jesus, I pray you would draw them to yourself. That they might see you for who you are this morning. That you might obliterate any doubts. That you might draw them to yourself in repentance and faith and save them in this moment. I pray this, Lord, for your sake and for your honor alone. Amen.